Hello, my name is Ian Hawkins, and you're listening to The Y Word, the program that gets under the skin of artists, entrepreneurs, creators, and anybody that makes things happen to ask why they do what they do. Hold on to your hats, because coming up later in the program, you will hear this. And this particular uh, time I went down, picked up the Radio Times, BBC Two, Tuesday night, nine o'clock, and the title was Wheelie Rubbish. Now it takes three quarters of a... Uh, three quarters of an hour to an hour out of my day just doing physiotherapy taking 20 30 odd pills a day as well on the medication side but but for me I've that's my normal I but mentally I, I kind of just see myself as a normal person and CF is just something I keep behind a wall I think looking back it was a, an incredibly strong life lesson a very harsh one but um, one that made me realize my time was going to be shorter than most and I need to make most of it rather than worry about the inevitable. Today's guest is not just an inventor and not just an entrepreneur. He's also a survivor. Born with cystic fibrosis, Rob Law has defied expectations of doctors to live well into adulthood. And he's also invented the trunkie, which is a familiar sight to anyone who's been to an airport. Rob Law, welcome to the Y Word. Thanks for having us, Ian. Well, I, I'm delighted to have you. First of all, trunkies, if people don't know, are those really cute little uh, suitcases on wheels that small people spin around on the flat floors of airports on. So you say you're a problem solver who, who sees a problem and just has to solve it. So Rob, what is the problem that a trunkie solves? I guess it comes down to um, uh, kids getting a bit bored with the mon- mundanity of traveling through airports. And the, the original idea was to uh, create a device that would allow them to ride on their own luggage, uh, taking inspiration from children's ride on toys, uh, but sculpt it and make it ergonomic so that a child could comfortably sit on it, give it a bit of character uh, so the kids can fall in love with them. Uh, and it'd be a real benefit to, to parents to get them from A to B in, in record time. So really we have two customers, both the, the parent who wants utility and functionality and the child who really wants to have personality and, and to make friends with this product. Do, do people really fall in love with it, Rob? I mean, it's cute, but are they, how, how invested emotionally are, are people in their, in their luggage? That's oh, brilliant. I mean, we get um, photos of kids having their birthday cakes in shapes of trunkies. Lots of parents email us to tell us that their kids have taken their trunkies to bed with them. I guess it's because they're quite animalistic. They become their own little pet. And they actually go on a a nice long journey with the child for at least five years. They come with a five-year guarantee. uh, uh, And this this trunkie has been with them through really key memory-making moments of visiting different countries or going to visit grandma and all these kind of key exciting stages. I think I've located the origins of of this trunkie, which is that... In the, in the film Airplane, there are two wheel-along suitcases that scrap at each other like dogs. Is that, <laughs> to be honest, Rob, is that where it came uh, from? Classic, yes. Uh, the idea actually came to me while I was um, a 19-year-old product design student studying at Northumbria University, and uh, the class rented to, asked to enter a national luggage design competition. So I went along to a local department store looking for inspiration in the luggage section and noted at the time hard-molded suitcases were quite fashionable by the brands like Samsonite and Carlton, but they're all black and boring and kind of didn't really find much more 
uh, inspiration there. And I guess because I'm a bit of a big kid at heart, I found myself in the kids' toy section, drawn by the bright colours, looking at the ride-on toys, reminiscing about how my younger brother used to ride his ride-on tractor relentlessly around the garden. But actually the manufacturing technology to make these these toys wastes a lot of that internal space and just thought why not marry that manufacturing technology from the adult luggage that's really popular at the moment but make it really functional as a ride-on toy so that's where the the idea actually was born back in 97. Wow 1997 so that's going back a few years so it, it wasn't exactly a smooth ride to success was it I mean you did uh, you did Dragon's Den I've talked to a few people that like the idea of Dragon's Den but your experience wasn't fantastic so so where did where did it all go wrong? I think we're, we're semi-famous for being the most uh, well-known rejection on Dragon's Den. Uh, but I guess taking a quick step back, I won the competition. Uh, the judges took me aside and said, you've got quite a commercial idea here. You should try and license it. So I approached luggage manufacturers, uh, telling them we're going to revolutionise children's travel together. And they very politely told me I'd invented a toy, so I should go and see a toy company. And the toy manufacturers kind of did the reverse and told me, go and see luggage companies. So it took seven years before I could try and get the product to market. I finally found a toy company to license it to. They had it for three years, secured a global licensing deal, was really looking forward to these royalty checks flooding in. And uh, they went um, pop three years later, having only secured one customer in Saudi Arabia. So Trunky had never really conquered any shores, really. Two weeks after that first container arrived and I decided to do it myself, I took Trunky on Dragon's Den. Really, I'm I'm a trained product designer, had no business training. I just really knew I had a a product and a brand that I wanted to bring to market. Yeah, so I I took them on the den. I had no real money. I'd taken out a 10,000 personal loan to buy that first container. I had no real business knowledge uh, and I could do with a bit of marketing exposure and I certainly got one of those things. It aired in September 2006, season three. The pitch had gone perfectly in front of the Dragons. Toad Richard Farley, the Aussie guy around the studio. And um, at some point, Trixie the Pink Trunky turned up at Theatres' feet, who's kind of renowned now for heavy product testing, should we say. And he ended up kind of grappling with this pink trunky and ripping off her toe strap, which made a great bit of theatrical TV. And sadly, all the dragons uh, jumped on on this and thought, Peter Jones told me my business was worthless. Deborah Meaden didn't see the business opportunity. Duncan just didn't like the business. And they all kind of went out. Richard Farley was my actual target because I knew he had toddlers. So he saw the other guys had gone out and he wanted half my company. I was only prepared to give away 10% for that 100,000. Might have gone to 20, but definitely not half. So I left empty handed quite literally because I did sell um, uh, Richard, the two trunkies I took on the show, gave him a Dragon's Den discount. I always think Dragon's Den is brilliant if you have a product that the person on the other side of the screen can get it's less good for those big conceptual things but if it's a, like a bottle of sauce or a, indeed a, a suitcase it works in its own terms people will want to buy it whether or not the dragons do is, is that a fair comment uh, that certainly turned out to be the case but at the time i really wish i'd invented a, a time machine and not a ride on suitcase told the, the bbc told me they'll give me about six weeks advance notice before it aired um and uh, I kept waiting for this email to come into my inbox and never got one. It became the penultimate episode of, of season three. And every week I'll go down to local news agents, pick up the Radio Times and try and find out whether there's any hint I might be on. And this particular uh, time I went down, picked up the Radio Times, BBC Two, Tuesday night, nine o'clock. And the title was Wheelie Rubbish. 
So Yikes. That, that colour drained from my face and I, I knew it was going to be car crash telly, but I hadn't quite imagined to this kind of extent. Now, I, I didn't think I was going to sell many. I might have to close the business the next day, but I did think I was going to get a lot of web traffic to my website. So I might as well grasp that opportunity, post a survey up and just get Ghana further feedback from customers about the marketing message or the product. <clears throat> and that night when the program aired, over 2,000 people filled in this survey with phenomenal words of support. They really got the product and um, uh, we sold out that night as well. And the challenge I always had was manufacturers didn't get it, investors didn't get it, and retailers didn't get it, but consumers did. And that was a real kind of turning point for the business, having for, uh, for what, nine years then, struggling to get this product to market to have finally uh, bullseyed the, the demographic and the market. There's a bit in your book, which is, I've got to say, is, is a really good book, and we will come on to it later, Rob. But it's about the idea of a patent versus a brand and why a brand is more valuable than a patent. Just what was the thinking behind that? Well, I guess it was partly down to circumstances. <clears throat> you can't actually patent a concept for a ride-on suitcase. You can patent the way the wheels fix if it's innovative or the way the catches work, um, but you can't patent the concept. So to me, it was about getting a, a really strong brand around the product, a lifestyle brand. So it's not toy, it's not luggage. It's actually a lifestyle brand that helps people travel with their families and brands are so much harder to copy than products. We've had umpteen copies of Trunky over the years, at least 30 odd uh, attempts, but they've just copied the concept of a ride on suitcase office, taking a lot of the design cues, but no one's invested in the brand behind it. And that's what really is the, the more aspirational point. Um, we've got a close to a hundred thousand followers on our Facebook account, very active, engaged community. And people don't just want products. They want to buy into more of a lifestyle product um, that they can engage with. And, and that's really partly the power of branding. It's, it's trying to do more than just create a product. In many ways then Dragonstone was more of a, it wasn't so much a setback. It was more a blessing in disguise, would you say? Absolutely. I, looking back now, I wouldn't turn, change a thing. It all just worked out perfectly, but it was very hard to see that at the time. Um, every time there, there's a new series of Dragon's Den, one of the tabloids will, will mention us as the one that got away. I actually had Theo come to visit us a few years later on a catch-up show, and he came to visit me in my first office, and I presented him with a, a Herculean trunky where I'd replaced the toe strap hooks with a padlocks. Uh, and had a bit of banter with him then. What are your What are your top tips for somebody that's thinking about going on Dragon's Den now? Well, I guess from from my experience, you kind of do need to create a bit of theatre uh, to make that memorable episode um, and uh, to get that ten minute slot. Um, so so yeah, it, there's a lot of competition uh, for that final edit. So. Yeah, just think about really why you're on there. Clearly, you're on there for the, the money and ideally the mentoring, but there's a great marketing opportunity there. So try and figure out how how you may be able to maximize that opportunity. I have to say, it, I didn't plan this podcast to be like this, but we do seem to have had a couple of people that have come on the show that have also done bits of reality telly. We've had Margaret Heffernan, who did Secret Millionaire. We've had Ayesha Masood and Dan Lassman, who've both done The Apprentice. And they always say, you know, you have to play up, you have to be entertaining. It's not about what you're doing, it's how you do it. And is that sort of a, a good lesson for, for branding in general? I mean, we've been trading for 15 years now. And if you try and think back 15 years ago, 
um, business was pretty dry and boring and, and innocent strings. They were really quite pioneering. So I took a few leaves from their book. Um, we had funky job titles. We tried to have a bit of humor with our messaging with customers uh, uh, and customer service was a really key point for us in the early days. Due to having a few teething problems with the product and catches popping open and things, uh, I always used a bit of humor to win round a customer. And 15 years ago, you picked up the phone to call customer service. You kind of had gritted teeth and you were ready for a battle, weren't you? Uh, as way before um, customer service became really important. So I, I think from a marketing point of view, coming back to your marketing point, there's no point in investing in advertising unless you haven't got a really great product that people can champion and also really strong customer service that support that dialogue with customers. I think it's a nice idea. You're on, you're on a big TV show and you've got four people who say, we hate your product, but you know you'll get the traffic. And so you put something up there that shows why real people actually really love it. That's like quite a smart idea. Yeah, another, another thing I wanted to do was really tell my story because obviously there's the edited version and there's the real version, which no one ever hears about. So I was, I was very keen to try and get my story across without sounding bitter uh, and the solution now is simply writing up a, a children's tale of Terence Trixie and the Five Dragons as told by the Trunkies uh, to use a bit of humour and get a, get a bit across what really happened in the den. So that, that was quite well received too. When you have one of these cultural moments like that humiliation in the Dragon's Den people get an idea of you but it's only a tiny part of your story and who you are and what you've done. I mean that was one afternoon out of Rob's life, and yet it sort of informed a lot of opinions about him. And I wanted to find out a little bit more about the rest of the story, the story that's under the waterline, about that resilience, about the cystic fibrosis, how that had changed him, how that had affected his attitude, and what it meant to him as a business person, and, and what it was doing to shape his life going forwards. So you're a product designer by training. Uh, so you've got the trunky. That's big success, big tick. Is that occupying all your time or is there anything else that you're, that you're also putting your talent into? We've built up trunky into a whole range of travel products and have a whole portfolio of things from car seats that turn into backpacks uh, through to kids' swimming bags. So trunky has now evolved into the global children's travel gear brand. Um, but a couple of years ago, I decided to start taking a bit of a back seat. There are much better people at running the business on the day-to-day -day than me, so hired some really good guys to, to be joint MDs. Uh, and I've got a great team around me, so that freed me up to spend the time that I can really add value around branding and product development, but also to, to start a family as well, which was really important to me. Uh, uh, and now I've got three young, beautiful ki kids all under six, which is quite time-consuming. But it also gives me opportunity to explore other, other things. So the book has always been on the back burner. A lot of the business speaking gigs I do, whether it be a keynote or a man to a management team, everyone always says at the end, I oh, should write a, a story about this. And dealing with the resilience and overcoming the challenges mainly being the theme, possibly around innovation uh, and leadership too, and sometimes marketing. But it was quite interesting that people were so engaged in that story and they didn't even know my backstory uh, and how I came to be quite so resilient. So I thought if I, if I told the true story, which was going quite personal, I might be able to help more people overcome adversity, not just in business, but with health conditions or tragedy and family loss and things like this. So, so I decided it was time to dig deep. And not that this is any way comparable to you but I have one of my lungs collapsed and so I had to have the inclined and the and the wobbles on myself therapy. yeah and be forced to cough which is a very unkind thing to do to somebody with pneumonia on one lung and the other one collapsed <laughs> <laughs> but fortunately I didn't I, I don't have to keep doing that do you still have to keep having the physio 
Yeah, so uh, cystic fibrosis is the condition I've got, and uh, that affects essentially the salt balance in your body, which means it's very hard to clear your lungs and they get clogged up with mucus and therefore infections. Very easy to pick up colds. It affects the digestive system. So the first eight years of my life, I couldn't eat any fat. So I was on a fat-free diet, just eating cottage cheese and, and uh, carob chocolate. Uh, but then a new pill came along and I, I then flipped almost overnight into a high-fat diet. Uh, but for probably the first 20 years, I had to do the inclined thing, lots of physiotherapy. And then a device was developed that they called a flutter, which was essentially like a pipe, like a smoking pipe with a ball bearing in. And you blow into it and that vibrates the lungs, but you can do it sitting up. Um, and I've been doing that ever since, really. But it, it kind of takes probably now it takes three quarters of a uh, three quarters of an hour to an hour out of my day just doing the physiotherapy taking 20 30 odd pills a day as well on the medication side but but for me i've that's my normal i but mentally i i kind of just see myself as a normal person and cf is just something i keep behind a wall um uh, and i have to take those drugs and do that physio but I, I never think more of it than just being my normal and that was an interesting experience when I started the business. Uh, when do you tell someone you got CF? And I, I didn't want anyone's sympathy, so I never really told anyone. Um, and it was only through uh, one of my first work colleagues who, who took it upon himself to let people know why I kept coughing my guts up on my desk uh, um, um, while I was always coughing and things like this that, uh, yeah, a lot more people started to, to know. But it's something I, I've kept very close to me, um, never really talked about, but felt with this book, if I did, it might help help others. On the subject of that, other people telling your story for you, is, is that must have been, I don't know, was that, that must be quite a difficult thing when somebody tells other people that you've got you know cf i mean ultimately do you think that's a good thing do you think people should know or is, where do you sit on that line? well within the closed work commit within the team at work um not so worried about that because obviously people are going to be asking questions and and if, if they can be made aware that's that's fine rather than me having to tell them yeah i, I think now i've achieved so much with the business that um and always never wanting anyone's sympathy and growing up my mum was very strong a very strong woman whenever me and my twin sister would try and get a bit of empathy well not empathy sympathy sorry she was very empathetic but not uh but and, and things were getting a bit tough for us she'd just always say there are always people worse off than you and that's kind of always been at the back of my mind whenever I start trying to go down that self-pity road uh, I always think, well, there's uh, people much worse off than me, so um, I just need to pull up my socks and get on with it. The other thing about you, Rob, is that you have dyslexia, and you've now joined the growing ranks of dyslexic people I know who've got books out. And I've read it, and it's a really good one, which is annoying. <laughs> so are we, as, a, as a society, are we getting better at solving the problem of dyslexia, do you think? Uh, I, I'm not too sure about that, but um, uh, I mean, one of the key business skills I've got is about delegation and finding people who are better at me than doing something. Uh, so when it came to writing a book, it was absolutely clear to me that I needed some support from a ghostwriter. So working with Peter, Dr. Peter Hughes, who I selected in the end, who's a a doctor in psychology, a marketer and an entrepreneur. So quite a, a lot of synergies there. To get the story out, we're really keen to make it more of a page turn, a bit like a piece of fiction rather than a dry, boring business book. 
um, with takeouts and tick boxes and things like this. So, so yeah, he really added a, a great skill set there to make it a page turner, keep the narrative flowing, keep people hooked. And we've got some great Amazon reviews reflecting that. So I think it's a, it's a great page turner. I read it in two days and, and great things like this. So, um, yeah, really pleased we created a very engaging book. But that did mean compromising. And there are various stories I wanted to get in the book. But, you know, Peter was like, we've really got to focus on this dialogue and, and keeping the reader glued and hooked so didn't find space for some of these stories it's it's incredibly emotional i mean the the, the opening chapters are about you and your relationship with your with your twin sister who who, who passed away when you were 19 16 16, 16 yeah. beg your pardon um so i mean that must be an extraordinary life event surely that shaped you quite profoundly it did absolutely and <clears throat> it was a hugely harrowing and uh, tra- traumatic experience um, for the family and, and for me because she lost her life to cystic fibrosis and um, uh, and yeah it was, it, I, I think looking back it was a, an incredibly strong life lesson a very harsh one but um, one that made me realize my time was going to be shorter than most and I needed to make the most of it rather than worry about the inevitable I put CF behind a wall focused on trying to find my passion, what I could be good at. Uh, and that turned out to be design and product design. And from, uh, from an early age, I finally figured this out because as, as, a, as a child, you kind of dreamed of being an astronaut or a soldier or whatever it may be. And, and astronauts and soldiers need strong lungs. So I was quite aware from a very early age, I couldn't be these things you dream of being, which kind of helped me also find uh, what I could do and, and being in special needs classes at school being almost branded a dunce and a thicko because of the dyslexia um, uh, I, I, I kind of really wanted to find out what I could do and, and that was using my hands more as a reader you read it and you go this is impressive and I, I, I notice how often people that are successful entrepreneurs do not have a brilliant educational career necessarily yeah, I, I quote Sir Ken Robinson in the book, who, who's, um, who I didn't know about when I was growing up, but he's, he's run the most famous TED Talk, the most viewed TED Talk, and he talks about how the education system kills creativity. And, um, uh, and although I struggled a bit in school, I had a great time at university, but I'm very passionate about education and sit on the board at the, the local university's business school. So I'm really, really passionate about trying to get people thinking more entrepreneurially it's a, it's a tricky term entrepreneur I, I, I prefer to use um, enterprising because not everyone can be an entrepreneur because entrepreneur is about taking risks and putting a lot on the line but people can think very um, enterprisingly and very creatively to solve the problems and do you think that that willingness to take risk you know partly you have your you have your cf to, to thank for that yeah, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I mean, you're taking risks all the time. I mean, growing up, should I be going to a swimming pool and swimming where where bugs and germs can collate? I mean, I'm not not supposed to ever go in a hot tub because a lot of bacteria can grow around hot tubs. There's always this balancing act of whether you take that risk or not. And now I'm a, an open water swimming and swim in very green looking lakes with lots of all sorts of things growing. But but it's really important for my lungs to get that physical exercise. And actually, physical exercise has played a key role in my my survival my fitness and setting kind of annual challenges to keep me training and to keep me focused uh, and one of the things I've kind of realized when I was writing the book it really surprises me the power of the mind and how we can achieve things that you really shouldn't be able to I mean someone with poor lungs should not be able to run a marathon or half Ironman and even when I'm doing these events 
just the mental power when you're just thinking that you choose something to fight against. So I'm running along, my legs are falling off in a lot of pain, hitting that wall. And I'm just thinking, if I can run that extra mile, I'm going to be pushing that inevitable fate with CF further down the road. And you can just drive through these things and um, actually achieve quite a lot. What do you think it is that has made you be able to push that, you know, you called it the ultimate fate of CF. What has made you able to keep pushing that on? One of the key learnings is uh, is around focusing on the things that you can control and not worry about the things you can't. So I remember from an early age, the cure for cystic fibrosis was potentially just around the corner. A decade later, they were no closer. So I gave up hoping for a cure and just thought all I need to do is focus on staying as healthy as I can so that when a cure does turn up, whenever that might be in the future, and I'm not going to spend any time worrying about it, that I, I will be in the best place to receive that treatment. We're talking now during COVID and lockdown and, and the business, we're in the travel sector, so we're, we're, we're affected by the lack of flights going, but I can't influence when the government's going to lift those travel bans. What I can focus on is controlling costs. I can control my marketing message, so I won't talk about traveling to airports anymore. It's all about staycations, visiting grandma, camping trips. Overcoming challenges of any shape or size is, 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 takes a huge amount of mental energy. So if you can really use your energy wisely, as I say, focus on those things you can control, uh, it gives you a lot more stamina and durability to, well, I guess we call it resilience now, to overcome these challenges and to then have the energy to look for the opportunities. I've got to say, Rob, it is remarkable how here we are in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic and a, a disease that affects lungs. And as soon as you brought it up, you started talking about how it's going to affect your business and not how it's going to affect you. Have you been particularly cautious or have you seen it as another problem to solve? I'm one of the guys that got a, a letter from the NHS saying I should be shielded. In, in theory, I shouldn't really be leaving the front door. But again, exercise is really important to me and, and going out in the evenings when it's a lot quieter, running or cycling is certainly something I've been doing. Uh, and trying to look too far into the future is quite disconcerting and worrying what's going to happen this autumn, winter. Um, so again, it's just focusing back in on the daily challenges, uh, not to, not getting too carried away about the future, and also being grateful for the things you do have. I'm very fortunate to have a, a nice-sized garden that the kids just love living in at the moment, and, and, and a decent coffee machine, and it's just, just feeling gratitude for some of those small things rather than resentment for not being able to do certain things. Rob, my final question is, you can have a business lunch with anyone you like in the world, alive, dead, fictional, past, present or future. Who are you going to have your business lunch with? Wow, um, that is a very good question. I mean, in the early days of running uh, Trunkian and actually at university, I was a huge admirer of Apple and Jonathan Ives. Um, and how he was such a product pioneer and created whole new categories of products. So uh, in his later, it turned out later, he was a, he was a, a bit of a mean leader and, and his leadership skills were somewhat questionable, but I think it would probably be Jonathan Ives um, reincarnated to, to go for a burger with. <laughs> Rob Law, thank you very much for your time on The Wire Wire. Thanks, Ian. Pleasure. As you can hear, we completed our interview just as the Wi-Fi signal started breaking up perfect timing. Rob Law's book, 68 Roses and a Trunky, is available now. Definitely worth seeking out if you want to have a story that is moving, powerful, inspiring, and all kinds of other things that business books really ought to be. Thanks to Rob, and thanks to you, dear listener, for joining us on a really quite a roller coaster of a show really wasn't it we've had the dragon's den we've had trauma we've had life-threatening illness we've had business success what more could you want 
If you'd like to make any comments on the show, please do find me on LinkedIn. That's where I love to communicate with people. And if you have anybody in mind for a guest on an upcoming show, someone that's changed the world in some way, could be big, could be small, could be kind of random, by all means, do put us in touch with one another and we'll see where we go. If you haven't already, do check out the archive. We've had some fantastic guests. Hit that subscribe button. My name's Ian Hawkins. Have a great time till the next time.